Hello, it's Wednesday, November the 17th. I'm Andrew Pearce and this is the Andrew Pearce Show coming as ever from the Daily Mail Newsroom. Coming up... We're going to be talking about banks. Do you know they've closed 2,750 branches in the last five years? They make all that money and so much for personal service. Also, gas prices have soared even higher and two more energy companies have gone under. Figures from the National Child Measurement Programme show a huge rise, if you pardon the pun, in child obesity since the beginning of the lockdown. But first, police investigating the Liverpool Hospital explosion think that the suspected bomber was plotting for at least seven months. Police investigating the Liverpool Hospital explosion say the suspected bomber began his plot at least seven months ago and was almost certainly a lone wolf operator. Ahmed Al-Swamin died after the homemade bomb police believe he had built was exploded in a taxi outside Liverpool's Women and Babies Hospital. Dr Rakib Hassan is a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society and he believes the attack is caused in part by Britain's failing asylum system. And he joins me now. Um, Dr Hassan, you make the point that I've been making all the way through this. How on earth was this man still in Britain when his asylum application was rejected seven years ago? Andrew, I think it's absolutely remarkable. As you say, his asylum application was re- rejected all the way back in uh, 2014. And, and on top of that, uh, he'd also been sectioned under the Mental Health Act for six months over a knife-related incident. Uh, what's very interesting about this case, Andrew, is that uh, this particular individual converted to Christianity. Yeah. And there, there is the problem, which has been raised by senior Church of England uh, clerics in the past, who have said that Muslim asylum seekers were rushing to become Christian converts to avoid deportation from the UK to their country of origin, which would include ultra-conservative Islamic societies, um, where the charge of apostasy could be punishable by death. So you can see there how the frailties within our asylum system um, are being exploited. Who's advising them to do this, do you think? I mean, would they just have that idea off their own back, or are are these lawyers who are no doubt being... funded through legal aid are they recommending or encouraging these young men in particular to to convert to christianity well andrew we do have a legal sector and human rights activists who who essentially represent a roadblock to our public safety Uh, and that includes how our deportation regime functions Uh, but we also see this pattern taking place in other countries uh, including germany so there is a possibility that asylum seekers are learning from refugees in other countries in terms of adopting strategies which can block or rather avoid their removal from European societies. Now, you've, re- you've written a report for the Henry Jackson Society that says since 1998, about a quarter of foreign national offenders convicted in Britain of Islamist terror-related offences either claimed or were granted asylum here. Um, how many people is that, though, um, Dr. Hassan, I mean, are we talking a few dozen or is it much more? So in terms of, we're talking about that particular pool. So we're talking about a total of, in the region of 100 uh, individuals in that broader pool and one in four within that pool um, either was granted asylum in the UK or had uh, claimed asylum um, in Britain. But many people would say that that, that's just far too too, uh, high a number. And what it does show is that there is a pattern emerging 
between uh, people who have either granted or claimed asylum and then uh, eventually uh, indulging in forms of uh, terror-related activities. And I do feel that that also exposes how our asylum system doesn't prioritise collective public safety the way it should. And I note as well, in 2010, we deported 10,000 failed asylum seekers. Last year, the number fell to 1,500, which, as you say, is absolutely pitiful. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I think that shows that uh, over time, uh, asylum seekers, uh, with the support of uh, those who operate within the legal sector and the human rights industry, they've, they've found ways... Uh, to avoid their removal from Britain. And they, they, they've, they've tried to find, uh, how do you say, chinks uh, within our uh, deportation regime, which can be exploited. And I, and I think that there is a, there's almost a metropolitan liberal naivety involved here, Andrew, where people feel that asylum seekers coming from unstable social and cultural settings, they'll seamlessly integrate into British democratic life, they'll be appreciative of uh, British liberal democratic freedoms. But all too often, those freedoms that Britain's hospitality and generosity is being taken advantage of. Yeah, uh, and we know the Home Secretary, Priti Patel, she talks tough, doesn't she? Uh, But she's clearly not got a grip of the asylum system. And and the other point, if I could ask you, I mean, obviously, we don't know the answer, but every day we're seeing, or every week, we're seeing hundreds of people illegally crossing the channel. We don't know how many of those, if any, or or if there's a lot, may have jihadi sympathies or uh, intentions. Absolutely. I think that it was last Thursday, I think the total was 1,185 people had illegally entered the UK via the English Channel. And that's not a sustainable situation. I think that with the UK government, there is a a fundamental gap between the rhetoric and meaningful policy action. And I think we're we're talking about uh, high numbers of people who have not been subjected to extensive background checks who are illegally entering the UK. And and that does pose very serious issues from a social cohesion perspective. Uh, For example, if you want a well-funded, comprehensive welfare state that relies on having a stable national membership, you need to have those ties of social trust and mutual respect. That can't really be achieved if you have high numbers of people entering the country on an illegal basis. Um, but it does, of course, it poses uh, concerns from a national security perspective. We don't know the ideological leanings or rather the susceptibility to extremism among those people who are illegally entering the UK. So it's very important that the UK government gets a grip of the situation. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, that's Dr. Rakib Hassan, who's a research fellow at the Henry Jackson Society. Thanks so much for joining us. Visit mailplus.co.uk to listen to The Andrew Pearce Show for free, in full, along with our other podcasts and video series. Remember to tell your Alexa speaker to play Daily Mail News. <laughs> Figures from the National Child Measurement Programme suggest a shocking rise in child obesity since the beginning of lockdown. Obesity campaign groups say the figures are alarming and warn that lockdowns and school closures have taken a huge toll on youngsters' physical health. I'm joined now by Tam Fry, who's chairman of the National Obesity Forum. These figures show that one in seven youngsters now are obese by the time they start reception. And by the time they get to year six, the proportion of the two fat rises to one in four, up from one in five in 2019. 
terrible. Absolutely frightful. And what do we do? What's the answer? The answer is very simple, is that we should uh, immediately put into effect a strategy which will uh, encompass all the elements of obesity. We've had now every strategy that uh, has been devised by five governments since the year 2000 have been seen to be not fit for purpose. And in 2019, in my opinion, the chief medical officer, Dame Sally Davis, proposed the first really workable strategy, which uh, she posted Boris Johnson on the 19th of October, uh, 2019. Nothing has happened as a result of that. What's got to happen is that stern draconian measures have got to be put in place to actually try to bring this uh, problem under control. Just remind me what Sally Davis's strategy was. She, of course, is no longer the chief, medi- uh, the chief, med- medical, officer chief medical officer for England. England. Yeah. That's right. She's gone now. But what, in a sense, was her strategy? Her strategy was uh, covered uh, about uh, 10 major areas, food, agriculture, tax, revenue, every, everything that you <clears throat> need to think about when you're, when you're dealing with correcting a, a big problem in society. And she came up with 60 measures in all, which, uh, in her opinion, and the opinion of other people uh, from whom she uh, uh, consulted, uh, were, were necessary to, to bring a dent in this problem. I mean, they, for, she started off with a continuation of the successful uh, sugary drinks industry yes. levy of 2018. That was her first recommendation, that this should be extended, uh, it should be expended to cover milk, milkshakes and any kind of uh, beverage which had overloads of sugar in it. But then she went on to presume that this could then be extended into uh, foodstuffs. The first one that comes to mind, of course, is breakfast cereals, which are yeah, inundated yeah. with sugar. But also you've got to think in very seriously in terms of biscuits and cakes and all that kind of snack food which we are consuming too much of. Basically, we're eating far more sugar than we should, but particularly disastrous is the fact that children are eating twice as much as they should, and when they get into adolescence, they're eating three times as much as they should. And so anything which will uh, get the food industry to re reformulate its products so that these excesses are dismissed uh, has got to be a good thing. The success of the sugary drinks levy took 30% of sugar out of consumption within a year. Nobody thought it would happen. Everybody thought that the industry would revolt against it. It would be too difficult. People would regard the levy as being a tax on themselves. But actually, it was a tax on industry uh, and basically said, if you don't take the sugar out, the treasury will, t- uh, will levy you. And, and the food industry quite rightly said, we don't want to pay for lots of money to the government. Let us take the sugar out. And out it came. So the revenue raised from the sugar tax, Tam, what happens to it? Does it disappear into the exchequer and uh, is used for all manner of uses? Or is it used specifically to fight back in, to, against obesity? 
Yes, and that is the uh, other important issue, is that when the public knows that the money is hypothecated for particularly uh, uh, public health reasons, uh, then it is much more inclined to understand why the measures have been put in place. The sugar levy did two things. First of all, it put money into breakfasts in schools. Uh, So many children arrive at uh, school uh, with uh, incomplete breakfasts or breakfasts which are too high in sugar, which uh, make them hyperactive. But so uh, the, the, the money was planned to be put into schools to make uh, every school offer healthy breakfasts so that children could learn properly with, in, in the morning without uh, hyperactivity. The second thing is that uh, uh, schools were given money for more equipment for exercise because exercise is the other part of the equation. So it was quite clear from the outset that all the money coming from uh, the uh, sugar levy would go into these two issues. And the really important thing is that the government failed to achieve the money that it thought it was going to be paid when it announced the sugar levy Um, uh, But because the sugar levy was so successful, uh, it received less money, and therefore the government got to make up the money which it thought it was going to have uh, from the exchequer. It's a real win-win situation as far as obesity is concerned. 30% less of sugar in circulation and more to come. Very interesting. That's Tam Fry, who's chairman of the National Obesity Forum. Visit mailplus.co.uk forward slash subscribe to get access to our podcast, videos, opinion pieces and much more. If you want to get in touch, you can tweet us at mailplus or me at Tory Boyd Pierce. Gas prices are soaring even higher with after more energy firms collapse. Consumers are now being warned to brace for bills soaring by £475 a year amid new fears about European supplies. Wholesale gas in Britain was worth around 60p per therm at the start of 2021, but that figure has now reached £2.40. Dr Craig Larry is a senior consultant at Cornwall Insight, which is an energy market intelligence firm. Dr Larry, part of the problem, I gather, is to do with a proposed pipeline all connected to Russia and Germany. Uh, Boris Johnson, the Primes, are very unhappy about this pipeline. And now the Germans, it seems, are going cool on it. How does that affect us here in Britain? In terms of the direct impact of these events on the the wholesale market, what we've seen um, earlier this week is quite a sharp increase in wholesale prices uh, for the remaining months of of the winter period. So in terms of the the immediate term effect, that's what we've seen in the uh, the wholesale market. Um, I think it's important to note that although we've seen this sharp step up in the market, um, the market as a whole is, is actually not as high as the levels that we saw um, early, early in October, um, right. where, the, where, where prices were very much at, frankly, unprecedented levels. I'm not saying that the levels that they're at now aren't unprecedented, aren't unprecedented but they certainly aren't as high. And part of the reason that the prices went so high was to do with Russia. Then Russia intervened. Is, is Russia a significant player in our problems? Certainly in terms of the Russian um, supply to continental Europe, then it's a, uh, it's a very important contributor to the, um, to the European supply mix. In terms of the amount of gas which comes directly to uh, the UK market from Russia, um, it's not uh, it's not 
really a source of direct supply. What we are seeing, however, is the uncertainty regarding um, the, um, the new pipeline link really is playing into um, wider underlying uncertainties relating to um, uh, gas supply availability for the um, uh, for the winter months and therefore any I think it's fair to say that any news which involves the potential increase or restriction in Russian flows to the European market um, that uncertainty that news is, uh, is is very much played out in terms of the movement on prices. And, and um, we know that the uh, on Tuesday the German energy regulator suspended approval for that pipeline. Uh, the uh, it's the Nord Stream pipeline, and also uh, there are the Americans have imposed sanctions. Uh, if that pipeline doesn't go ahead, and my understanding is it would carry Russian gas directly across the Baltic to Germany and wider Europe, does that mean gas prices are going to go up even higher? I mean, I think that that's uh, that's a possibility. I think what's important to note is that the the suspension which the the German authorities announced um, was uh, that's only expected to be temporary. Uh, it has uh, it, you know, and that suspension has been undertaken largely on technical grounds, and so you know we are expecting um, a decision on that to be made um, probably no later. Than the um, uh, than the start of 2022. Uh, it's also important to note that what, you know, what we have seen in the background is that um, there has been an increase, a general increase in Russian flows into um, into Western Europe over the last um, week to ten years. That's why that's why it's existing pipelines uh, pipeline infrastructure. So if these flows um, Continue to grow, and there's no no, no impairment to um, um, to those uh, to those flows. Then um, that should um, hopefully um, uh, start to start to weigh on um, prices for the remainder of the winter period. And if I could just ask you that the, the latest price hike, uh, I note it's two forty at the peak um, in October. It was three pound fifty per therm. But the the latest hike has meant two more small suppliers, Neon Reef social energy supply they've gone under so so that dizzying diversity of gas suppliers we we could choose from a year ago is rapidly shrinking i think what we have is there's um you know as well as the issues relating to russian pipeline uh, infrastructure and general european demand there's also the issue of what we're seeing in the wider um, global gas market, particularly with regard to um, demand for uh, cargoes of liquefied natural gas, uh, which um, which can indeed come to the to the UK and the European market. Uh, there's um, an increasing amount of um, competition for those, uh, reflecting both the um, uh, the reopening of economies from from lockdown expectations of economic growth but also the fact that you know at the end of the day we are moving into the um uh into the uh the winter period proper uh if you will as uh, as december's very much on the horizon very interesting that's dr craig larry who's senior consultant at cornwall insight the energy intelligence company 
So Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood's here with the latest sport n- sports news. I don't think we've spoken since you predicted, Matt, that England could be five or six goals up against San Marino all the other day. And I thought, blimey, that's a bit optimistic. They won 10-0. Well, I don't like to play my own trumpet, as you know. No. Um, and I did say, yeah, they'd be five or six nil up yeah. at half-time. I mean, to be fair, San Marino are so poor yeah. that that wasn't an outrageous they really, prediction. They shouldn't really be in international football, should they? They shouldn't really. No, it's a bit of a joke that they... The there should be a t- Well, they? there should be a tiered... They're all part-timers. Well, not all of them, but a fair few of them are part-time footballers and part-time plumbers and what have you. There should be a tiered system for some of these World Cup qualifiers whereby they have to qualify to be in the qualifiers because, yeah, that's pointless. That's not doing anyone any good. Although Harry Kane would argue it did him some good because he banged in four more goals. He's going to overtake the ghastly Wayne Rooney's record. He will overtake Rooney, yeah. goal goal scoring. Exactly. Only a matter of time now. Mm. Um, And he's gone level with Gary Lineker. and uh, Seven goals in the last two games, was it? Seven goals in two games, yeah. Very good. Yeah, only Do you think he might start turning it on for Fulham, for Tottenham now? Well, that's the yeah, that's the big quantity. He's only got one league goal this season. Yeah. So, um, Antonio Conte will be hoping that he will, their new manager. Yeah. And I think under Conte, I mean, I wouldn't like to suggest that any player, any footballer would dare to down tools, as we like to call it, uh, in football parlance when they don't like their manager. Mm. But there is a suspicion that some Tottenham players may not have been giving their all under their previous boss, Nuno, uh, and Conte won't have that. So, yes, I expect to see the goal start to fly in from Harry Kane now. If they weren't giving their all, they should have had some of their vast inflation salary deducted. Do you think footballers yes, pay too much? I do. And probably deputy sports editors are as well. <laughs> if only. What do I know about that? Now, that man Rafik, uh, his evidence to the select committee will c- continue to cause um, huge ripples in cricket for, for a long time. He says the entire Yorkshire board should be cleared out. He's probably right, isn't he? Oh, he's absolutely right. I mean, most of them are gone, to be right. fair. Um, and there's a new uh, chairman in, as we know, Lord mm. Patel, who's come in since mm. this all uh, happened. But yesterday was absolutely a humbling and horrible day uh, for cricket. Uh, well, it depends how you look at it, actually, because it was it was awful in terms of it was harrowing to to see yeah. him, see yeah. how emotionally he was, and to yeah. hear his testimony. But let's hope that it was actually uh, a, a moment, uh, a watershed moment, and the game will now look at itself and say that you know we have to improve because he shone a light on lots of murky areas named lots of people who should do better um and it was you know it was pretty sad all in all um and the lengths he went to and and what i thought was most interesting about um this because lots of stuff leaked out over the last few weeks and over the last year really and there's lots of accusation and and denial and cover-up as he put it what i thought was most interesting yesterday was that he wasn't being vindictive it wasn't a witch hunt on his part he wasn't going for certain people he wasn't angry at you know michael vaughan for example or joe root or any of the people who had even matthew hoggard who used to call him some awful names he was a former yorkshire cricket and former England cricketer allegedly who allegedly used to call him some of these awful names um, he wasn't vindictive against mm. them he was doing this to improve the game for yeah. future for the future yeah. and as he said he doesn't want his son he wouldn't want his son to be involved in cricket as it is now and let's hope that thanks to him and thanks to his whistleblowing in 10 years time he will feel more like his yeah. son can go and play <clears> the sport that would be nice I think I think it seemed an inspired appointment of Lord Patel to be chairman of Yorkshire Cricket I'm not sure he was right to compare the, the, the racist abuse to the Stephen Lawrence tragedy that was a young man lost his life he was murdered by racists yes no yes. one's dead no, we don't, we don't like it. We don't like it. We don't it. like racism, but no one is dead. No, that unlike is true. Stephen Lawrence. That is very true. Yes, I think that's probably an unfair comparison. But yeah. I do think that in all this, there's been lots of suspicion um, about Rafiq and lots of people saying, you know, and 
a lot of this come, has come from Yorkshire, trying yeah. to belittle him, trying to shut him up, uh, and not letting him say his bit. Well, he said his bit yesterday, and he, and he was in, he was mighty impressive. He was. And, and let's hope that people can um, learn from it and move forward and improve the game. Uh, moving on, Rory goes green. Is that Rory McIlroy? Yeah, so interest, interesting little story. So Rory, a couple of years ago, Rory McIlroy, the golfer, yeah, you're right. A couple of years ago, um, won an event in China and then flew back to his home in Florida. And he was the only person on the plane, um, apart from the pilot, obviously. Was it a private jet? Yes, yeah, so a private right. jet, yeah, which, yeah. which all these top golfers have yeah, private yeah. jets. They all fly around the world well, because there's wealthy. tournaments here, there and everywhere in every mm. corner of the globe as, as more and more um, tournaments pop up. Um, and so, you know, golf has got a real um, issue in terms, of, uh, in terms of its carbon footprint. Now, mm. Rory has said that he is trying to reduce his carbon footprint to zero now that means obviously that he what he pays uh, to offset whatever it costs right. him to run his private yeah, jet by yeah. donating money yeah. i guess to charities who sure. uh, so Planting trees and things exactly so good on him you know good on rory yeah. mcelroy for realizing there's a problem and uh, he lives in florida so he mm. said you know yesterday when he was talking about this and explaining why he's gone green there's lots of you know horrific weather patterns and some of these hurricanes hit uh, places like florida so maybe yeah. he just doesn't want his mansion to be knocked down by a passing hurricane but uh, I thought it was quite impressive, yeah. and it would be nice if the rest of golf caught up with him. Why didn't you just get on a plane with the rest, of, like the rest of us? Well, probably because it's. Uh, yeah, well, that's a good point. Probably because and, he's, and, then, and then he'd have no. He, he, he could and he could still offset the, the flight, and and and. What, 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 and then there's no private jet flying around. You're right. You're, you're absolutely right. Well, maybe he would argue that, I've, you know, he has to, because these tournaments are so back-to-back yeah, right. and he needs so to practice, green, et but only to a point. Well, yeah. But uh, look, it's better than nothing, isn't yep. it? He's yep. always going to fly from A to B, we, and it's better that he yep. does this than nothing. So let's not... No, no, of course, but we do have to be devil's advocate here on this <laughs> you podcast. You do. Yes, always. Of course, I know. <laughs> right, now, Eddie, uh, is it Jones? Eddie Jones, prepares yeah. Prepares England for the South Africa match. That's rugby. So... We beat yeah. Australia. We beat Australia. Yeah. We beat Tonga, and uh, they were okay in patches against Australia last week. Um, Marcus Smith and Farrell played. You know, there's this uh, debate about who should be playing at 10, which is yeah. the kind of key position, and who should be at 12. And last week against Australia, Smith played at 10, who's the young lad. Farrell, the older guy, played at 12, and they kind of crossed over a bit. Well, this week, Farrell can't play. He's injured against South Africa, so Marcus Smith is going to be given the, the free role to kind of run the show. And we're playing the world champions, mm. um, and traditionally to beat South Africa, who are a big, strong, powerful side, we need to, England need to move the ball, something we failed to do um, in the World Cup final, as you'll remember when we lost. Mm. So if Smith is the man, we could find out this weekend because he's going to be given free reign to pass the ball, move the ball quickly, and hopefully beat the uh, the big box. And is that match this Saturday? That's this Saturday at, at Twickenham. Yeah, yeah. Well, so we're looking forward to that, aren't we? And you're making a prediction. I am going to make a prediction that it's going to finish 12-9, so not that free-flowing, I'm afraid, because I think it's difficult against South yeah. Africans, but 12-9 to England. Right, OK, so you've heard that. Put your money on South, Africa. South Africa. Put your money on <laughs> South Africa. Deputy Sports Editor Matt Gatwood. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Research conducted by MoneyMail, and it's fascinating, I can tell you, has shown that friendly cashiers at your local bank are increasingly being replaced by robo-banks. In other words, you don't get to talk to anybody. 
Banks say they're responding to customer demands, yet nearly half of the adults polled said they prefer face-to-face service. Joining me now is Amelia Murray, money mail writer, who has done this research. Amelia, I w- according to your evidence, your figures, nearly 3,000 bank branches have shut in five years, and these are our big banks too. Mm-hmm. There's been... They're closing at a, an alarming rate, and it's not a new thing. Um... But what we have now seen or started seeing is that the branches that are remaining open are really cutting the services that they are providing to customers. So I've heard from a number of readers who have told me that, you know, after visiting a branch to speak to someone face to face, because let's be honest, why else would you go to a branch if you're not looking for that counter service? They're being either refused counter service or directed to the machines and there seems to be varying degrees of um shall we say kind of force here so people have told me that you know as soon as they've joined the queue to speak to someone they have been taken out of the queue and marched over to a machine um because that's the way that the bank is telling them the services are being provided. Um, we've also got, you know, in with HSBC for example, we've got a complete refurbishment of the network where almost I think 40% of the branch network is now going to be digital only. So they're completely doing away with the face-to-face counter services Mm. and everything's going to be done on these machines. So there's, you know, the branch network as we know it or knew it, especially for some of these customers who have been there for, you know, almost 50 years Mm. are now having this face-to-face service removed. And they also, at the same time, Amelia, they're shutting down a lot of the cash machines. So not only can you not talk to anyone in in the bank because the bank has either disappeared or, as you say, when you're in the branch, they march over to machine. But a lot of cash points are going as well. So they are cutting themselves off in a sense. Exactly. And, you know, only today I heard from a customer who wasn't even allowed in a branch. So, you know, they got to the door and they were like, what do you need to do? think he needs to pay in a check and they were like we'll do it in the machine on the roadside so they're like bouncers quite in, in nightclub in, are you old enough to drink in here clear off well quite and i think you know the main the main thing that people have been having a problem with here is like well what what is the point in these branches if they're not going to provide a service which i think is exactly what the banks want yeah. so so that then eventually they can shut them all together well this is it if more customers are being told to you know directed to to a machine or they're being told that they can do it at home with mm. online banking then what's to say that they're not going to do away with the branches altogether and machines break down and online isn't always reliable. Exactly. And, and some people do not want to bank online. Well, exactly. And just because you keep reminding someone that the online options are there doesn't mean that they want to use it. Everyone knows. Every, you know, I've been in branches and, and they've told me you can do this online. I know online banking exists, as does everyone, but people are choosing not to use it for very legitimate reasons. I think one of like, you know, the major problems with this, you know, pushing people to using the machines in the branch is that they're not considering customers needs at all there are some people whose eyesight isn't great they can't see the numbers on the screen people Mm -hmm. might have arthritis or issues with mobility and it's not convenient or comfortable for them to use the machine if i forgot my glasses i'd be blind at a a cash machine i wouldn't be able to do it well exactly but if you're queuing for a counter why why shouldn't you be be seen by someone who's there yeah the other point i think a lot of people get irritated by banks increasing they don't want to put a bank statement in the post they want you to get it online i'm at war with my bank over this every month i say no i don't want it online i want it in the post well exactly it's kind of yeah you keep your records i know you could then print it off but you've got to find a printer that works you don't really want to print your bank statement off in the office in case you forget i see it 
<laughs> well, you're actually writing it. It's not very interesting. But yeah, but, but, but I mean, that's a point, isn't it? You know, uh, you might not, your printer at home might not be working. Mm-hmm. And I think the issue here is, you know, the feedback that I've had from, from customers is that they're just not being listened to. Mm. They've been loyal to the bank for years. Yeah. Um, they've got to know, you know, that these people are talking from the times where they used to know the name of their branch staff and the branch manager and they were regulars and there was a relationship. And now they're being pushed to these, you know, anonymous machines mm. That don't seem to work anyway. Lots of people have said that there's they, they have problems with them, they either don't work, or something goes wrong, and then it takes weeks to sort out. They're spending double the amount of time in a branch when they could just pop in, get someone to do something for them, um, and then leave, as they've known before. Funny you say about bank managers. I still remember the name of my first ever bank manager. It was Williams and Glynn's, and he was called Mr. Inkpen. You couldn't really forget no. that name, could you? Wow. And he was very nice. Wow. Yeah. Good old Mr. Inkpen. Good old Mr. Inkpen. I suspect he's long been retired. That is Money Mail writer Amelia Murray. He's written a terrific piece in the paper today, as ever, about the banks who are just frankly not cutting it, in my view. Thanks for joining us, Amelia. Thank you. That's all we've got time for today. For the latest from the Daily Mail, you should download the Mail Plus app. Every weekday at 5pm, you can listen to me all over again. I'm Andrew Pierce. This is The Andrew Pierce Show. I'm going to be back with you tomorrow. Have yourselves a great evening and good night. Good night.